Perhaps you've heard of this unique um, contest in the nation of India. Um, so it's, it's a bike race, and uh, the unique feature of this race is that the loser wins. So, so the one who can ride the bike the slowest without stopping actually wins. So you can't put your feet down, you can't stop the bike. You have to keep some forward motion but the one who comes in last actually wins. So the loser wins. Now, this is analogous to what I think Jesus is speaking about in this call for discipleship, that it is in you losing your life that you actually win. It's in giving that you actually receive. It's actually in dying that you live. You know, we've started this class or this five-week series on discipleship. How can we cultivate a culture of discipleship in this church? And we looked at some of the characteristics of it last week. And this week, I want to look at two things about discipleship. First, understanding Christ, the one that we confess, the one that we follow. We have to confess Christ rightly, to follow him rightly. And so we're going to look at two things. I just want you thinking two big ideas here. One is uh, to confess Jesus as the Christ means to understand his suffering. And then to follow Jesus as the Christ will involve difficulty and hardship. So these are the two ideas. And I think you heard them both. First, confessing Jesus as the Christ you know, you, you notice this scene where Jesus, interesting part in Matthew's gospel, we're kind of taking a turn. It's a midpoint. They're now heading to Jerusalem. And so he's speaking with his disciples, and he asks them a question. Now, just as a point of, of understanding the scriptures, when Jesus asks a question, it's often not because he doesn't know the answer. It, it's so, so, so as to prompt a teaching that the disciples need to hear. And so we asked him a question, and he simply says this, who do people say that I am? Now, you know, a lot of names were given, John the Baptist, Elijah, and some of the other prophets. Those are all kind of impressive names. But, but let me remind you, the crowds don't understand Jesus. They see him as one of the same. They see him as a continuation of prophets that have come before. They don't see him as different, and they don't see him as greater. So they have a reduced understanding. They don't see Jesus as the Son of God who is sent to save, to bring about the redemption of God. So they don't get it. Okay, then he turns to his disciples. He says, well, who do you say that I am? Now, any shock as to who answers first? Peter is always out of the gate first. And the first thing he says is, you're the Christ. Now, Peter's not giving him another name. He's giving him a title. You are Jesus, the Christ. The Christ, the Greek word, Messiah, Hebrew word, it's the anointed one. It's the one that was promised from God to come in the line of David to bring about salvation. They get it. This is like an epiphany. This is like a watershed moment. In Matthew's gospel, Peter also says that you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, this was not revealed to you by men but by my Father in heaven. This is a huge moment. This is the lights are on. We get it, that they see Jesus through his preaching and teaching and power and miracles. They see him as unique. You're the Christ. I mean, they're overwhelmed with it. 
They're impressed with Jesus being the Christ. To them, here's what it meant. One has come to deliver Israel, to establish Israel back among the nations, to restore to Israel all that was promised, back to the kingdom of David. That's what he was thinking. That's what these disciples were thinking. We'll be great again. We're going to be a great nation again, is what they said, and what they were thinking. They, which, which makes it kind of surprising, because what Jesus says is, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Well, why? I mean, it seems strange. He strictly charges them not to tell anyone. Why? Oh, we've been waiting for you. Rome has been over us. We've been subjugated to them. We've been paying taxes to them. We've been bearing their injustice. And now we can't say anything. Why? Because they didn't understand fully. They got it kind of. You know, here, he said he's the Messiah. He got the title right, but he didn't get the conception right. He didn't understand, nor did the disciples. Did they really understand what it means to say Jesus is the Christ? And you see that in verse 31. In 31, what does Jesus do? It says, and he began to teach them. In other words, Jesus moves back into teaching mode. I'm going to develop their understanding of me as the Christ. And so he says, the Son of Man must suffer. I want you to hear that. Must, by necessity. He has to suffer. Now this would have been new to them, and it would have been a problem for them. Because as I said, they expected the Messiah to be great and mighty, Victory would pile up upon victory, would pile up upon victory. That's the way it was going to go. And you see this because Peter begins to rebuke him. I mean, think about this for a minute. Peter actually pulls Jesus to the side and says, he chides him. No, you can't say that. You're the Messiah. We're going to win. This is, this, is, this is go time now. We got victories ahead of us. And do you see what Jesus does? Notice what it says in the text. But turning, in 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter and the disciples. It says turning and seeing his disciples, they're all nodding their heads. They're agreeing with Peter. Yeah, you're not going to suffer. You're not, we're not going to let that happen. We're going all the way to Jerusalem. We're going to do this thing. And so he rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. So he's attributing Peter and the apostles' desire for him not to go to the cross, for him not to suffer and die, as being just a mouthpiece of Satan, the same thing that Satan tempted him with back in the desert temptation. Do you remember when Satan said to him, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms if you just worship me. You will get what you want, and you don't need to go the way of the cross. And of course, Jesus rebukes him by quoting scripture. But now Peter's picking up Satan's line. And so Jesus rebukes him. Peter wanted salvation apart from a cross. He wanted a kingship without a cross. They wanted the glory and the honor and the earthly and the temporal blessings without the suffering. And so Jesus rebukes him for that. Now, you know, Jesus will two more times in the Gospel of Mark speak and prophesy that he must suffer and die and be raised. You know, Jesus is making these prophecies, I want you to understand, not because he's showing some predictive power, like a weatherman that always gets it right. He's trying to instill confidence that when I die, you will know that I'm sovereignly laying down my life to die. I've come to die. 
Nobody's taking my life from me. This is not I'm getting blindsided by some political move. He is choosing to die. He wants to die. He will die. In fact, he must die for us. To, to confess Jesus as the Christ, you have to, he has to die for us. We cannot save ourselves. All the wrongs that we've done, we cannot undo. And we can't do the rights that we need to do to earn his favor. I, I wonder if in the back of Jesus' mind was Psalm 49. The psalmist says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man, no woman can ever save themselves, is what he's saying. I have to die. If there will be redemption, I have to die. Do you confess Jesus as the Christ? And if you confess him as the Christ, is this the Christ that you confess? Do you see the cross as central, integral to God's unfolding redemptive plan? You know, th this is not as easy as you may think, because I want you to think about it. You know, we tend to project images upon God that are similar to us, and, and we like to reward people that try. We do. If you see your child really making an attempt to do something, you're quick to bring encouragement. You're fast to bring reward. I mean, you want to fuel that behavior. And we tend to think, well, if I, if I really try to live a life that is moral and right, I have conservative values, I'm, I'm really studying theology, I'm I'm really engaged in these efforts to be a good person. Uh, God wouldn't look at that and bring judgment. I mean, God wouldn't look at that and, and somehow find me wanting, would he? I mean, look at all that I'm doing. Yeah, I know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm really trying. And, and that's, that's innately the way many of us feel. R.C. Sproul uh, is a contemporary theologian, and I've quoted this a number of years ago, but I think it's appropriate. He speaks about this age-old difference between the way natural man sees the problem of his relationship with God and the way the Bible sees it. He says this, Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. We, we just, it's counterintuitive to us. If you're a Christian, you want to delight with me in the necessity of Christ dying. We have no other hope. We have no other, we have no other way to God other than Christ has to die for us. In fact, a Christian does more than delight in it. It should be like an irresistible draw of us to admire Jesus. Like a moth to a light in the dark. I mean, you think about Jesus Christ taking on flesh, dwelling among us, that he knows he must suffer and die and be raised to save us. Does admiration not begin to well up in your soul? Does a sense of appreciation or gratitude or thankfulness, does that not begin to move you toward him? See, Jesus wants you and I to confess him, but to confess him correctly, understanding that his way is a hard way. But look at how he fuels our efforts at discipleship by 
by laying down his life for us. This is what fuels right discipleship, is, is devotion, not duty. Devotion to the one who, by necessity and by his choice, he laid down his life. Is this the way you confess Christ? Do you see it by necessity? Do you admit, can you, in the quietness of your soul, know that apart from his death, I am a person without hope? That is what it means to confess Jesus as the Christ. But, but notice what follows now. What follows is Jesus in 34 begins to them, then explain, okay, this is the confession of Christ, but now, if you understand this, here's what it means to follow Christ. So confessing Christ is then followed by discipleship or following Christ. Look with me in 34, because Jesus then calls the crowds to himself and his disciples. So after he's dropped this bomb on them, he then calls everybody to himself. Now notice that he calls the crowd. So, so this call for discipleship isn't for the upper echelon of Christianity. I know in, in your mind that we often think of these gradations within Christianity. Well, I'm a new Christian, and he's, uh, you know, he's been a Christian for a few years, now, he's really a saint. This guy, he has really been in the faith a long time. and He's really a saint. He's those unique guys. He's a disciple. I mean, I'm just a Christian, but, but he's a disciple. Well, you see here that we don't really have that choice to say those things and make those distinctions. There, there are no distinctions in the scriptures. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a Christian. It's the same thing. There, there are no gradations. He crawls the crowds to himself. It's men and women if they come at a younger age, we're just disciples or we're just Christians. We're the same. And do you notice that he calls the disciples back, or excuse me, he calls the apostles back to himself. Now you must be thinking, well, why is he calling the disciples? If you want to, he says, he calls the crowds and his disciples or apostles. He says, if anyone would come after me, they're already following him. But Jesus is reengaging them. Why? Because they were following him with a different understanding of what the Christ was. Now he says, I'm going to suffer and die, which you begin to get the drift where we're going if you want to follow me. And he wants to re-engage them. Do you really want to follow me? And so he begins to lay out these three things, these three descriptions of what it means to follow. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those three things. Let me just explain them briefly. Uh, because they're very sobering to me. Um, this is what it means to be a Christian. You, you don't generally hear this in many of the altar calls given. To be a Christian, you must deny yourself. Now, what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that I don't eat chocolates at Lent. That's not what he's speaking. It, it doesn't mean that I'm going to go without sweets during this period of time. He's saying deny yourself yourself, as in not aspects, but you. In other words, you're renouncing, as a way of life, the pursuit of your personal interests and goals. It's foregoing, forming your identity around the things that you do, the successes that you have, the beauty or the brilliance that you may achieve. It's surrendering an identity built up on me. It's moving the gravitational center of, of my will to being now God's will. 
It's really renouncing myself as my happiness, my pleasure, my goals, and my dreams. That becomes the epicenter of happiness for me. That's my identity. If I make it, that's, you know, the people living to make sure that what they want is what they're aiming for. It's to renounce all that. It's really, it's really repentance. It's repenting of me wanting to be God. Really. It's me wanting, it's me repenting of wanting everything I view life. You know how you view life? You, you view what people say, what people do, how things, it all relates to how it affects you and, or me. And I'm at the center of the core of Tom's universe and I have to renounce that. I have to repent of that. And, and you do that at the beginning of the Christian faith, but you do that all the way through because our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it every day. I want to understand life through the lens of what affects Tom. And I've got to, re- that, that's the mark of the Christian is the daily repentance of self. God, forgive me for wanting to step into this transcendent realm of your glory. Forgive me for that. And, and it's born out of love. Because we just read about that. I must suffer and die for you, is what he would say to you as individuals. Paul even picks it up this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ now controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's drawing on this necessity of Jesus dying. So that's renouncing yourself. Number two would be taking up your cross. To take up your cross, if I would be, um, I'd like to humbly suggest it doesn't mean patient enduring through suffering. I don't think it necessarily means that. To take up your cross, I don't think means that I've got to deal with a, a difficult spouse, a troubled child, and a chronic illness. That's, we say, that's my cross to bear. That may be a trial that God is bringing you through, but I don't think that's what he's referencing. To say, take up your cross, to a person hearing Jesus would have been to grab this wooden beam and to carry it to a place of execution, and then you would be nailed to it. There were probably 30,000 crucifixions during the lifetime of Jesus. These men and women would have seen it repeated over and over and over. To say, take up your cross, would have had one meaning to them. You're going to die. You're going to lose everything. What Jesus is saying, not that every single person will die, but there's a willingness to die. There's a willingness to let go of this temporal earthly existence in following him. There's an openness to lose everything for him. Uh, to take up your cross is that we are going to face mockery, injustice, and suffering as we follow on the narrow way. Uh, it's not suffering that comes because I'm a, I'm a foolish person. It's the suffering that comes from my obedience to following Christ. So the integrity that you exercise at the office, because you love him, and the costs that may come from people marginalizing you, or when you speak up to the things of Christ in a public setting, 
And people just kind of chuckle under their breath or act in a condescending way. Or the sacrificial giving you may make for the purposes of God's glory and the suffering of the hardship that you endure. That's what he means to take up your cross. But there's a third one here, if two aren't enough. Third one is to follow me. To follow me. This is basic discipleship here, that you would follow him. And, and you know, these verbs here, these, these action words, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and follow, they're all in the continuous presence. That's a verb tense in, in Greek that means they keep happening. In other words, to follow Jesus doesn't come because you or I may have prayed a prayer at one point in time. Uh, It doesn't come by a decision I'm going to make. Maybe you heard a rousing message and you were moved, and so you you made a decision that day that I'm going to follow Jesus. No, following Jesus is every day you're following Jesus. And and you're repenting when you don't. You're following him every single day. Again, this is strong. This is sobering. This isn't simply, I love Jesus and Jesus loves me, therefore I'm a Christian. No, no. I pray it contains that you love him, and I'm sure that he loves you, but it's more than that. Discipleship is actually conforming your life to what he says. So, so when, when he brings, when you read the scriptures and he talks about repenting of your sins, or he talks about, um, he talks about giving, or he talks about uh, walking in purity, or he talks about his word, that you do what he says. That's what it means to follow. This is pretty sobering, pretty hard things to hear. Is this corrective to you? Is this adjusting in your mind what it means to be a Christian? See, for many of us, I think we have been oftentimes maybe sold a simpler bill of goods. But this is the way that Jesus called people to himself. This is the way that we ought to call people to himself. It definitely, if you're a publicist, or if you're some media specialist, or if you're a campaign manager, this is not the way you would advance a religion. I mean, you would not say, listen, we want to go out and start a religion, and here's the campaign. We're going to go up to people, we're going to say, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross, you probably die. And a lot of these people did. A lot of people are right now, actually. A lot of people in, in, in Lebanon, there were bombs from ISIS targeting Christian villages, North Africa, Iraq, Syria. So it's, it's not... This isn't history we're talking about here. This is contemporary stuff. People are losing their lives because of Christ. So it's a real deal. I mean, probably more now than it ever has in the past hundred years are we seeing it so in color on the net. This wouldn't be the way you'd start a religion, I don't think. But does it challenge you? I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, well, great not to everybody, but great to some, he, he, um, he wrote these words in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of our encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, 
but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That is impressive to begin discipleship with. So let's assess ourselves for a minute. I don't know your heart. I don't think actually I know my own heart that well, and I'll explain that in a minute. But let's assess ourselves. Is this the way our discipleship looks? Does our discipleship have these marks of denial and taking up your cross and following him? Is that what it looks like? So, so in your home life, would it look like you know, you serving your spouse by seeking their spiritual good, by encouraging them with prayer, with, with words of affirming the grace that you see? Would it look like the parents, you know, seeking to develop spiritual awareness within their kids' lives, that they're, that they're putting to the side maybe the rest that they feel they need, maybe even they feel that they have earned, and they're going to move and pour in with grace to the spouse or the children? Uh, would it look in the church? How does this kind of discipleship look like in the church? You know, d- does it look like faithfully attending to hear the word? Does it look like engaging in ministries? It may be even a little bit out of your reach. You're willing to deny yourself this pleasure because I want to help this person in their spiritual good. Does it, does it look like rearranging your schedule because I want to be involved in the leadership or some other ministry of the church? But, but you know, you've got a lot of things going on. And, but I'm going to deny myself of those things. I'm going to, I'm going to take up the cost of putting in the time to let, we need leaders in this church. You know, it, it takes time, there's no doubt. Your leaders are often tired because they work so diligently. How does it look like in public life? In public life, to take up your cross, to deny yourself. I mean, do you have the courage to speak to the things of God when appropriate? Even though you may face their scorn or their kidding or their condescension to you. Are you willing to engage, to take up that cross? Or in your personal life, in your personal life, I'm just looking at the spheres of life. I'm asking you to consider your own soul for just a minute. In your personal life, do you as a disciple really want to learn what it means to follow Jesus, thereby requiring you to read what he says? Now, does it, it means that you forego, for example, entertainment or television, perhaps. Maybe it foregoes sleep to get up and to study or to consider these things. There's a new, I just got these numbers from a, a blog from Tim Challey's interesting blog, but he talks about the TV time. He, he did this full kind of, um, he did not, but he referenced this resource that did this full survey on our, our screen busyness, screen being TV and, and um, you know, internet and smartphones and all that sort of thing. And, and here, interesting findings. The amount of just TV time uh, among kids 2 to 11 won't surprise you. It's about 20 hours. I think that's probably an old number. The amount of TV time, though, that struck me as interesting is between 35 and 49. 32 hours of TV a week. 32, I mean, 35 to 49, who's got time to watch TV? 32 hours of TV. But, but was even almost more shocking, 65 and over, 51 hours of TV. 
Now, you know, there's one tweet that I saw from John Piper, and he made this comment. He said, on the last day, one excuse we cannot give to God about the lack of prayer or discipleship was, I didn't have a lot of time. I mean, with these numbers, I wouldn't pull that one out. <laughs> There's a cost to following Christ. Listen to J.C. Rowell, this English pastor, he says, let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does it carry with it any cross? If not, we may well tremble and be afraid. We have everything to learn. A religion which costs nothing is probably worth nothing. It will do us no good in the life that now is, and it will lead to no salvation in the life to come. This is one area where I think the, the, the gathered body of Christ can help. You know, we are so apt to deceive ourselves about where we are. We tend to grade ourselves usually higher, particularly men, I would say. I, I, I see women tend to be more realistic in their assessment of life. I've had more men. I, mean, one, I remember the one guy said to me, well, if I die, I said, you've you got to stop there. <laughs> That's optimism at a level that I haven't seen for a while. You will, so... But, but, but men tend to be much more optimistic about themselves and their spirituality. And, and, and Paul warns us of this. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. In other words, he knows that there are people who have put themselves in a right position with God that shouldn't, have, shouldn't be. And so he's saying, test yourselves. I don't want to... The one thing I don't want to do, and this is the fear that I have in preaching, is I wound the wounded. I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm not looking to convict the convicted. Uh, I'm trying to wake up maybe the drowsy, but I, I don't want to wound the wounded. But, but there, there is a place that we, we check ourselves and, and say, where am I in the faith? Am I a disciple you know, the, this, this three-part definition of a disciple, do I meet that? Can you invite somebody in to weigh in with you? That's the unique nature of the church. Where else are you going to find people who want your spiritual good such that they may say things to you that are hard? Nobody wants to hear hard things. I understand that. But don't we need to hear those things? I, I mean, aren't we, aren't we loath to, to oftentimes just take the time to, to look at our lives and accurately weigh where we are? I, I think about, read one author that said, it's only in the church that we can point each other's sins out. Now, if I'm pointing your sin out because it bugs me, well, that's selfish. But if I point out a struggle that you're having because I love you so much, I want you prepared to see God, and I'm inviting you to do the same to me. Isn't that love? Now somebody after the service, if you think I'm off base, I would love to. Be, I, I think at the elder meeting, we'll often bring up, it's a sanity check. Am I crazy to think this way? I, I, I think this seems like a good idea. Is this a good idea? Please tell me if there are holes in it. If you don't show it to me, I don't know that you really love me. Please do it gently. But, but this is where we can ask one another to weigh in with us on our discipleship. Do you see me ready to see God? Am I ready to see him?
in your opinion? And, and how can you aid me in that? God has designed us to be involved in preparing one another to see him. It can't be done apart from that. So, so these are tall orders here. To, to confess Jesus is the Christ is to recognize that he has to suffer for us. And to follow Jesus as the Christ is to walk in that suffering. Now this is maybe you think, well, I didn't sign up for this when I became a Christian. This is a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be for me to be a Christian. Well, I'm, I am open to correction if I'm overplaying this or misunderstanding this. Um, I'm thankful, though, that Jesus helps us here. If you look with me, that's just in 34. Look at 35 to 38 with me. He gives us these three encouragements. He, he reminds us of things. He doesn't want us to forget these things so that we can walk in the way that he's told us to walk in 34. Now look at 35. The first thing he's saying is don't forget this counterintuitive principle. Don't forget the paradox of giving is receiving, dying is living. Don't forget that. He says in 35, if you want to save your life, then you need to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Now, this is counterintuitive. It's the giving up to get. Now, when he says, if you want to save your life, I think what he's speaking about, if you make your end goals, your pleasure, your happiness, everything about you, if that's your end goal in life, if you're seeking to strive for financial success or business success, and I don't want to discourage anybody from working diligently for the glory of God, but if, if financial security and promotions, if those things are your goals in life, that you don't want to involve yourself in missions, or you don't want to involve yourself in ministry, or you don't want to even loosen your financial security by giving, if you don't want to do any of those things, you can see the person trying to save the life that they want. This is my identity. This is what I think is a good life, and I'm going for it. If you try to save that, you'll lose it. He's saying you'll lose it. As one author said, you'll be a fool without a peer. You'll be so foolish. But he says, if you, if you yield your life for my sake, if you give yourself to me, you'll find it. You know, Jim Elliott was that uh, missionary uh, that uh, suffered martyrdom in Central America along with three other friends in Central America in the mid-20th century. He said he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. You see the exact same principle in, in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable when the man walks across the field and finds the treasure. What does he do when he finds the treasure? It says in his joy, he loses everything. He sells everything. He unloads everything that was his life. He, he gets rid of it. This isn't a spring cleaning this isn't a garage sale. This isn't a pull of stuff out of the back of the closet. Everything he had, he willingly, joyfully, the text says, gives it all away, sells it all. I want Jesus. I want what I have here. That's what we're talking about. The disciple understands that in getting Jesus, you have everything so you can yield anything. I'm not saying he's asking you to give up everything. I'm simply saying it's a posture of the heart that, Lord, I am just open you are everything to me. Okay, secondly, the second encouragement he gives is don't forget the value of the soul. Look in 36 and 37. Look at these two questions. They're, they're given to us for each one of us to answer. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? Answer those questions. What are you striving after that is worth more than the soul? Now, we're very complicated people, and we often try to pursue two and three things at the same time. So I realize it's not so. Jesus often puts these situations in black and white. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to lose my soul, but does that mean I can't do this and this and this? No, life is more complicated than that. That's why we need to speak with each other about these things. But he's talking about a life lived over time, that that the pursuit of things in this world will never, never equal the value. It's a bad investment in terms of the value of your soul. Uh, William uh, Somerset Malcolm, he was a playwright. He wrote um, the play The Constant Wife that has gone through thousands of stages. He was a British author, poet, fabulously wealthy man, was probably the richest playwright author in the 30s. This was an article in the London Times written by his nephew about his life. And he said this, just give me a minute to read. It's a couple short paragraphs. He says, so this is the son or the nephew walking into, um, he was known as Willie, his house. He says, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that his success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered the, that the villa itself, the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean worth 600,000 pounds. It's back in the old dollars. Willie had 11 servants, including a cook. He was the envy, uh, who was the envy, the cook of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by a butler and a footman, but it meant nothing to him. The following afternoon, I found him reclining on the sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. The man said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? He said, I must tell you, my dear Robin, that was the nephew, that the text used to hang opposite my bed while I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. <clears throat> when he died, his, son, his nephew continued, the biography says, he f- continued to fall in repeating and shrieking terror, saying, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. He was a man who gained the world as it offered itself, and he lost his soul. Jesus says, don't forget about the value of your soul. But then the third encouragement he gives us is in 38. He's saying, don't forget the day. There is a day that will come to all of us. Look what it says. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Jesus is saying to us, To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow me is difficult. But you have to think about the day. There is a day coming when he will return in glory and power. And he references himself. Now, Jesus references himself as the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where he's going to come before the Ancient of Days God, and God's going to give the Son a kingdom that will be eternal, and it will crush all the other kingdoms. And he will be the glorious king over this kingdom. 
And you say, that day will be. So if you and I fear the shame of a culture because we follow Christ, he's saying, consider the day. He says, I'll be ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of him? I mean, is there fear and there trepidation over, over having an allegiance with Jesus? Do you find yourself quieting down, kind of staying low, either denying or concealing your allegiance to Christ? I have often done that in fear of what they may think about me. And as I say it to you, it's shameful. And I think Jesus is being kind to us right now in warning us to say, don't be ashamed of me. There will be a day when I will return. Those who honor me, I will honor. That's, what he, that's the opposite of shame is honor. Honor, admire him. That's why I love little kids. When, when you're really new Christians too, and new Christians come to faith, they have no shame. I mean, they just blast it out. They tell you what they think. This is what Jesus did for me. And I love it. They just blast it right out, not worrying about anything. And it seems as you get more mature in the faith, you get a little more resident. To be, you get a little more res, reticent to be so bold in your admiration over this king who saved you. Well, when you think about the day, you will be able to face the shame and the fear of shame more. When you think about the day, you'll be able to forgive easier. When you think about the day, you'll be able to go through trials more effectively. When you think about the day and you think about it and think about it, and I know many of us, we've got 10,000 things that we need to do in the next two weeks. And so to think about that day is difficult. But let me encourage you to do that because it's thinking about the day that will help us deny ourselves and take up his cross and then follow him. So two little chunks of beautiful material, confessing Christ, Jesus as the Christ, means that you see him as necessity. He has to die for me. And then following Jesus as the Christ means that you deny yourself. You take up the cross that he brings before you and you follow him. Let me pray for you as preparation for us to come to the table and pray for myself. Father, would you grant to us grace now to hear this message in the way that your spirit intends it to land on our souls, perhaps even as a, as a way of encouraging your children, perhaps convicting some, perhaps instructing others. Father, I pray that the words of this text and the uh, words that we have heard today would advance your perfect purposes in the lives of your saints. I, I pray for those who stand outside this circle of discipleship, and I, I pray that they would see the worth that you have to make this make sense. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.